ora and welcome to the Happy Revolution podcast. My name is Rachel and I'm a student here at Te Hiringa Victoria University of Wellington. I'm here with my co-host Matthew Bartlett, a Christian chaplain here at Vic, and today we are interviewing Michael Toy. Michael is a teaching fellow at the university. He's doing his PhD on digital religion and he lectures in religious studies. He's here to chat about faith in the digital age, misinformation and loving our online neighbours. It was actually during one of Michael's religious studies courses that this podcast became a dream of ours, and we realised that we wanted to continue some of the amazing conversations that we were having in our classes. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. Um, well, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. This is, this is fun. It's yeah. super fun. We've been really enjoying getting to have conversations with different individuals and just feeling like we're learning a lot from all of these experts. Would you be happy to just do a little introduction? Tell us about yourself, who you yeah, are, yeah, what yeah. you do. Yeah. Yeah. So my name is Michael Toy. I wear several hats right now. Right now I'm in the process of doing a PhD here at Teheranga Waka, Victoria University of Wellington in religious studies, looking at digital religion, specifically the experiences of minority Christians online um, and how they navigate theology and politics and power structures of digital systems. Can you go into a little bit more detail about like minority Christians, what those groups are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a, a scholar, Richard Garner, up in Auckland, and he's, he's huge in digital theology. And a few years ago, he put out a piece just saying, we have all of these kind of think pieces from white Christians about digitality and the internet and very very few people have gone and asked people of color disabled people uh what makes your experience of the digital unique and what are you bringing to it and what are you taking away and how can we come together and create a global christian community that helps each other flourish and i was really inspired by that article and thought you know that's something that i want to do as someone who is um person of color i'm chinese american they're generation immigrant to the U.S. and now first, I guess, first greatest generation immigrant to um, Aotearoa. So as someone who is Toiwi, learning how to be a good treaty partner, learning how to be someone who is Tanata Tariti, mm-hmm. um, it's really important to me to think reflectively about how to do that in a Christian way and how to do that in a material way and also in a digital way. And so material, I just mean things quote, in real life, right? Like things you can touch, taste, see, smell. And then, yeah, also how that connects to the digital world. What is um, digital theology? Yeah, digital theology. So that's a contested definition. Uh, there's a guy, um, he's in the UK, and he's he's given kind of a four-pronged answer to that. And I'm not going to be able to remember all four prongs of that. But one of them looks at the ways that digital structures affect the way that we read scripture. So that's looking at archiving um, and digitizing manuscripts, the power of AI, and even just the way we can send out these manuscripts to everybody, anyone in the world, um, just by a scan and some OCR technology. Then there's the reflection upon the way digital infrastructure and structures shape the way that we think about theology. And then there's the way that theology shapes the way we think about digital structures and digital life. Mm-hmm. So I'm missing one definition, but I think it's probably folded into one of those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of, I can't remember the name of the author, but a, a talk I listened to a very long time ago called Faith in the Age of the iPod. Um, well, this was, I guess, one one thing that digital maybe 
could do to theology was chop it up into little bits. And where we have a kind of bricolage of, I like this from this tradition, this from this tradition. It's sort of like a shuffle rather than having albums or CDs or uh, hmm. or records. But um, I'm not sure if that's if that's what you're thinking of when you talk about digital theology. Or yeah, 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 definitely thinking about that. I think the way I think about things is a little bit more theoretical. Kind of falls more into a philosophy of technology framework. So looking at the sum of all of our technologies, what does it do to the way we live our life? What does it do to our society? How does it shape our relationship with ourselves? How does it really shape our relationship with community? How does it shape our relationship with God, who we think of as God? You know, now we live with our iPhones uh, or smartphones or whatever it is in our pockets. So we can be omniscient, omnipresent, pretty much omnipotent, you know, it, just from a control of a button, depending on the back back uh, round of the technology um, or back in technology. But these are the classical attributes of God and the divine, right? So what does it mean now for us to be in this position, um, in this position of creating artificial intelligences where we can imagine all different possible futures, something that before has only been relegated to the divine and the sovereign and the omniscience of God. So the, how does that in turn shape the way that our lives unfold? I guess Jacques Lull, um, he was a French philosopher, theologian, and he talks about he calls it technique, right? So all of technology works towards certain ends, and that is of efficiency and self-propagation, so production. Uh, and all technologies, however they're used, lend themselves to those things. And so mm. what does it mean to be Christian um, in an age where everything is pushing us towards efficiency, right? So Koyama, uh, the... Japanese theologian talks about the three mile an hour God. So, you know, humans walk at three miles an hour. Jesus probably walked at three miles an hour, roughly. I know we're in Altero and we use kilometers. I don't know. Uh, yeah, for five. Five, 5K, yeah, five kilometer uh, mm. an hour God. So what does it mean, right, to walk that slowly, to live life at that creaturely level, right, of without cars, without e-bikes, without scooters? Um, what does it mean uh, to live life slowly? and not to prize efficiency above all else and production above all else. Mm. I wonder if there's a slow faith movement, like the slow food movement of a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, I reckon there should be, there should be if there isn't one. I did hear something about, like, um, humans can only actually, like, take in, to a, to a degree, like, the experiences that they have at walking pace. I noticed a huge difference when I was down in Christchurch the other week and I didn't have a vehicle or anything, and... I just experienced the city on foot and I was like, wow, I can see, like, I just feel like I'm taking in so much more than usual. I, and I just felt so much more connected with myself and with the space that I was existing in just by, like, walking everywhere. I wanted to ask how you feel like your, this, this kind of idea, these ideas, interact with your faith and how your research has interacted with your faith in God. Yeah, it's really it's really hard because now anytime I'm online, I'm like thinking critically uh, about myself and about, um, you know, what I'm doing and what I'm interacting with and who I'm interacting with, uh, which I think is good. It's got a really good first step. Right. So we call that reflexivity, thinking about what you're you're doing yourself. And it's a really good step to kind of consider, OK, so where is my mind going? How am I being affected um, emotionally? How am I? Um, behaving? How long am I spending on any particular thing? Is my attention span eroding? Am I able to read, you know, online? Am I able better suited to read paper books? 
So all of these are things that I'm thinking about as I'm going through uh, the research process. And I'm also thinking, I'm just reminded of the power of community, the power of connection and how it's a double-edged sword, right? So social media technology allows you to reach so many more people than you would have been able to reach before. But at the same time, we're still in this system confined by its parameters and its parameters of efficiency and of production. And uh, I don't want to say exploitation, but I will say objectification, right? So everyone is an object to be used or uh, gleaned from or useful in some way to the subject, to oneself. And I think that's a really dangerous way to live out life. And so, yeah, see, I'm really just excited to talk about people who are finding ways around those things and through those things and finding theological resources and cultural resources to subvert those values that technological society impose upon us. Um, your field work, field work that you mentioned earlier, is that connected with what you're just saying now about um, talking to people who have figured out ways or different ways of, of navigating this space? Yeah, that's the idea. That's the idea is to talk about yeah, the ups and downs, the positives, negatives of their experience um, in the digital and definitely want to make space for acknowledging the ways that uh, oppression manifests itself differently, right? So we know that colonialism, uh, we talk about a colonial matrix of power, right? That, that constrains and constricts people's freedom. Um, and we know that's amplified online in digital spaces. You see that in hate speech. You see that in the way recently um, some Maori city councillors were just detailed all the vitriol and abuse they have to go through on an everyday basis. And that's amplified, right? Like uh, that's amplified by technology. Another study that I read was on deaf men and dating apps. And so on the one hand, you have this great ability to communicate and participate in this dating scene that was hitherto restricted. But they also experienced way more discrimination because they were deaf. People just saying, you know, straight up, no, I don't want to date you or don't want to go on a date with you because you're deaf. People of color experience similar things. You know, it's just really amazing to me. It's, it's gotten maybe a little better now. I'm not on the, the dating apps anymore, but uh, yeah, the, the amount of people who would just say like straight up, like what race they are looking for on a dating app, you're like, well, what is this? You know, this is this is bad. This is not good. Um, and what values are we untethered from or what have we lost? What anchors have we lost that allow us to swing into this, this tide? There's something about a lack of fuzziness or that you have to have, or maybe on, online you get sharper edges or something where you can say, mm -hmm. where there's less serendipity or something. Mm. And again, it's just, you know, things get collapsed from human into object. You know, it's like I'm mm. looking for an object to fulfill my desires, my needs, and what I want. You know, the most successful relationships are the ones where you enter into a place of risk and vulnerability where it's like, oh, that's not what I was expecting. I wasn't expecting to fall in love with this person, but um, I did. And we disagree and we fight and we bicker. And that's a beautiful thing. Having disagreement is okay. Yeah. And, and you know, we're there to meet each other's needs, not just to satisfy our own. There's also a weird thing about, it's, it's very interesting to think about this stuff, but there's a weird thing about people getting, I'm thinking about my online line self and stuff, it's sort of, it's very individual. It's like just me and my preferences and my, what I want to sort of present about myself. Whereas mm -hmm. there's a whole complexity to, to me that's also about my immediate family and my family of origin and the communities that I'm part of and all this sort of fuzzy complexity stuff that is not well represented when you're interacting online. I'm just thinking about, be on a dating app and presenting a certain angle of yourself 
and and people not having to kind of deal with that all, mm. all that other stuff. Yeah, you can choose to let people into a certain amount of your life and keep everything else distanced. And I think like that means that you pick and choose what you're presenting to someone and you're not actually showing them the full you. And what you're presenting is shaped by what you think will get someone else to swipe right or mm. um, you know, message you back or do whatever. And it's it's so it's both, you know, what you want but also what you what you want to show, but the what you want to show is shaped by what you think other people wanna see. Wanna see. Mm-hmm. Um and now we have so many so many data points, right? That you can actually say, oh, okay, Tinder will tell you this is the photo that, you know, people are swiping on. So like put that one first. Um Wow. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. There's this terrible TV show on right now um, called Evil. It's terrible. It's good. It's fun. It's, you know, it's a guilty pleasure, I guess. It's called Evil. It's about uh, a priest, a psychologist, um, and a scientist who, like, try to figure out if um, this supernatural exists. And so they're employed by the Roman Catholic diocese and kind of go case by case. And it's just kind of fun and goofy, sometimes serious. But this latest season is all about the algorithms and the technology and the demons are the ones, you know, at the... TikTok-like company, you know, feeding people content. And yeah, and it's scary because it's so close to being true, you know. You know, these people, these designers, they don't have nefarious intentions or probably don't have nefarious intentions if you don't count um, capitalism as nefarious intention. But the way that it actually comes into use has to be considered, right? And and it's not centered around humans. It's centered around economic incentives. And, you know, by now we all know if something is free, then you are the product. You know, you're being sold to advertisers. Um, Your data, your views, your attention is being monetized. Yeah, it still makes me feel uncomfortable. It does make me, something you you mentioned, makes me wonder, these devices, which I'm very, also very plugged into, um, but it's almost like you're, I'm almost exposing myself to, to, all the stuff that I otherwise wouldn't, then in a non-digital world, it sort of feels safer. That three mile an hour thing, things can get at you less in a sense at, at three miles an hour. And it kind of makes me want to just sort of throw it all away and like get, turn into some kind of non-digital monk. But somehow that doesn't feel like quite the right approach. I don't know. Where have you got to? I think there's multiple right answers to this one. I think I really respect people who can unplug and, you know, throw it all away and just say, step, we're going to step away from all social media. Yeah, multiple right answers there, you know, it's tough. What's another right answer apart from stepping away? Um, continual self-reflection, um, both as an individual and as in community, critical analysis of what are these technologies doing? How are they unfolding? How are they being used? How are we using them? How are they shaping what we do? You know, I'm, I'm on this this church social media group um, on Facebook and the amount of people who are just looking for content to post content is staggering, you know? And it's like, look, like if you don't have content to post, then like maybe rethink your relationship with scripture, with theology, with community, you know, the invitation to church has always been get something exciting to happen and then invite your friends, right? Like if nothing's exciting is happening at your church, maybe rethink what you're doing at church. You know, and if you're not getting excited enough about going to church that, you know, that's like a place you'd want to bring someone, then maybe rethink what's happening or your views around it or, you know, um, yeah. 
So I think I think yeah, a, a bad, I think it's easier to critique the bad ways of doing things than it is to show the good of right ways. I always just try to find people I respected admire and then just try to copy what they do or think you know okay what would what would they do right? G.K. Chesterton has this great quote talking about Saint Francis and he says you know we always think the saints were just so like Jesus so beyond what humans could do but insofar as Saint Francis was like Jesus Jesus was like Saint Francis meaning the similarities go both ways you know and Jesus was fully human and he lived a human life and that's an attainable life um it's not something that's out of reach and so seeing those people who are living godly lives who are anchoring their values and anchoring uh, or anchoring their activity on digital um, platforms in their values um, whatever religion that may be you know most of my friends tend to be christian just from the circles i've run in and been in but seeing that play out online is really uh encouraging you know rejecting misinformation rejecting that that urge to be outraged at every little thing just acknowledging that truth and beauty are in this world and they're real love is good hate is bad you know like as some, some things as simple as that um finding those people who are living that out is is yeah it's a good thing can you tell us about these focus groups you're looking at and how you think that they can inform the way that we approach technology and kind of inform this whole like Develop, yeah, what you're just talking about here, right? The development of like figuring out how how to interact with technology. Yeah, so so it's kind of long been acknowledged, right? That everyone experiences the digital in a different way. And we, we've spoken about that a little bit. And there are different ways and specific ways, right? So we got to look at the particular ways that people experience the digital world in different ways. Um, and so by looking at... I'm, going to try to cover four different groups um, in my research. We'll see kind of what actually happens. But by studying with indigenous Maori Christians, Samoan migrant Christians, um, queer Christians, and deaf Christians, um, it gives us into a lens of um, indigeneity, of migration, what it's like to be, you know, speaking non-English in a very English-dominated industry uh, and world, what it means to kind of be on the fringes, on the margins, like queer Christians are, uh, of Christianity itself. And with deaf Christians, it kind of opens up lenses into material bodies and disabilities and differences of abilities um, and how we all experience the world differently in those ways. Yeah, and, and I think one of the reasons I want to do these focus groups or workshops is just to think critically and think theologically with these groups and you know there's been a lot of reflection i think individually and maybe corporately but putting those things in conversation with each other i think is really important right like it's through like diversity for the sake of diversity doesn't really help us right um diversity when it helps shape each other when it helps encourage each other and inspire each other like that's the beauty of it you know like we're not just here for some politics of representation we're here to actually look and see okay how are you living out your call to be a christian in this world and how does that resonate um with my call to be a christian in this world based on who i am where i've been born where i'm living what gifts i've been given you know, who i am as a human who i am physically um yeah so good when I was um, in Cambodia, I was reading Huia Come Home mm. by Jay Dukat. 
kind of learning about the story of New Zealand and how missions looked at kind of as Aotearoa was being colonised. And I think, what do you call it, like my takeaway from those kind of parallel journeys was this realisation that, oh my goodness, I have so much to learn from Khmer culture and from Māori culture and from all cultures that exist around me, anybody or any group who is not me or has not had the same upbringing, I have things to learn from them. But also I do have things to offer them and I have to acknowledge that too. And that that's the beauty of relationship with people who are different to you. It's like this beautiful kind of tapestry of different experiences and this dance of like learning to live at peace with one another and um and learn from one another rather than just like constantly, yeah, rub each other the wrong way. Like it's actually just about having the humility to to realise that people with different worldviews and life journeys have so much to teach us. I just, that's why I love what you're talking about with these different um, theologies that, yeah, we can take help and advice and insight from, I guess, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And do you have a hunch that the internet, digitality, social media and stuff has, has got an interesting role to play across those four communities yeah, it's the world we live in, you know? Everyone I've talked to has been connected to technology in some way, uh, whether that's email, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp or something. And so, you know, even if we're not thinking about it, it's there. When I tell people this, they're like, oh, okay, we'll get these young people in to tell you about the technology. They're like, no, 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 I, I'm interested in that. I am. But I'm also just really interested in the people who are, um, you know, 60 plus, 70, 80. Like, what is your experience of technology? What is your, how do you feel included? How, especially with the demographics of the church right now, right? And after all, it tends to be pretty old. You know, how have you been included in lockdowns? How have you been excluded? Do you feel comfortable online? Do you feel at home online? Do you feel like you're missing out? Do you feel like you can get accurate information? You know, how do you connect with your grandkids? How do they support you in this? How does your church support you in this? You know, we, we talk so much about ethics and living a Christian life, but I have yet to hear um, maybe one sermon, but, you know, a sermon, like a series of sermons on how to live in a digital world, what it means to love your neighbor online, what it means to be a light online, you know, and I think there's this, you know, the evangelicals do this really well. And in the U.S., they, you know, just post Bible verses every day or, or um, you know, share Christian memes, I guess. Um, and I think, and I think there's something beyond that, right? Like that's, that's, that's fine. That's good. Um, it's a, a right way to do things, but it doesn't get back into that technological philosophy, right? That, that technique where everything is still being commoditized and objectified and performative. So yeah, how do we, how do we get beyond that? How do we get into a, a deeper ground, I guess, of connection and of hope, of love? What do you think it means? to love your neighbor online? Oh man, yeah. Jesus's question, uh, answer to this question, right? Um, or Jesus, wait, 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 how does it go? Story of um, Good Samaritan, you know, the guy comes up and says, uh, what's the greatest commandment? Um, Jesus says, love your neighbor. Yeah, what does it mean to love your neighbor? You gotta ask, who's my neighbor? So is my neighbor <laughs> the kid in the DRC who's digging out these precious metals to put in my iPhone? Is my neighbor the young black man who's getting targeted by artificial intelligence systems in 
uh, South LA is my neighbor, random Twitter follower that I might, you know, have in common. And, and, and all of these are my neighbors, right? And so all of these things have to go into the conversation of what it means and how it means to, to love your neighbor online. The earth, right? The <laughs> care of creation. Can you love your neighbor? How do you love your neighbor um, in countries that are literally sinking because of climate change um, or who are literally dying of heat waves because of our advancements in technology? You know, these are all, I think, really important questions to be asking when we when we think about that question of what does it mean to love your neighbor? You know, like one transaction on Bitcoin. Oh, I'm thinking this is right. You can fact check this later, but one transaction, right? So you do one transaction of Ethereum or whatever is the same amount of energy as a single household in the U.S. uses for an entire year. Yeah. So like, yeah, you know, and like the Bitcoin, that that whole industry, uh, it takes more energy than all of the aviation industry. So, you know, this like promise of the blockchain and Web 3.0, like there's a huge cost, a huge, huge energy cost. And and yeah, we don't talk about that. We just think, oh, yeah, it's all just online. So online. We don't be. see it. Yeah. Yeah. Same with Internet servers. Right. And there's this big question of data sovereignty here in Altaro and with indigenous peoples like who owns the data? Where is the data stored? Do I have access to the data? Um, it's a really important question to be asking. What about the guy who is formed by extremist online presence and then goes and shoots up a store or a mosque? Is he my neighbor? Absolutely. 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 And this sort of gets really tricky, right? Because, um, there's this article in The Atlantic from this year or from this week, and it talks about trickle down influencers. So influencers, right, will do thoughts and prayers or like say something. And it shapes how the rest of social media responds to these things that have nothing to do with us. You know, they do in the fact that we have shared humanity and shared uh, culture, shared civilization, shared society. But, you know, like so few people, right, have any actual connection to tragedies that might happen around the world and we all like want to respond we want to like gush out and say like our hearts are are, are with these people and, and i think that's um it's good it is good but i think it's we have to acknowledge that we're being shaped and constrained uh, and contained by these systems and structures and infrastructures that we have around us and i think there's there's human humanity um and human responses that often get lost in those kinds of things right so you see maybe an article about like, oh yeah, and this person forgives the shooter. And you and you just immediately jump into a, a debate about whether or not it's right to forgive or what does that mean for people who don't forgive? And, you know, it's like, it's a good thing to talk about, but it's none of our business, you know? I think there is a lot of work to be done in combating extremism, both on platforms and there is somewhere you can do individually. I think it's really, really hard to combat the flow information and misinformation and disinformation that goes unchecked online. I feel like I saw on your LinkedIn profile something about a job that you had being a fact checker or a, um, a fake news analyst that's or something right. like that. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So when my, my wife and I were living in Ecuador and we were with working just remote jobs. So basically the company that I worked for con is contracted out by one of the big social media companies that I'm not legally allowed to say which one it is. Um, you know, you like click, okay, like report as fake news or whatever, report as misinformation. And then it goes to one of us, little like $10 an hour people um, who just say, okay, does this, you know, correspond to anything that uh, is a reliable source? 
you know, reliable sources being government websites or maybe AP News or some other reputable journalistic article. In 2020, in the lead up to the U.S. presidential election and the pandemic, I just couldn't do it anymore. It was just too, too soul crushing um, mm. to see all this content. So I, I, I bowed out of that. Uh, but it was really, yeah, it was really interesting to see there's so many articles and so much information that has that kernel of truth, right? It's you take that kernel of truth and you push it into a whole mountain of opinion. Uh, and it's really hard to fact check that because there's nothing wrong with the facts as presented, but the extrapolation and the opinions and everything behind it is just can be demeaning and yeah. So in that, for that kind of content, would you, in that job, have had to say, no, this is not misinformation. It might be very a very bad way of presenting these facts, but it actually is not misinformation. Yeah, yeah, you'd say that's not misinformation. Yeah, yeah. Because of our news cycles, right, everything everyone says somehow becomes important. And so it's like some official somewhere says, oh, yeah, like someone ate a bat. Or someone, or some someone stole a bat, and then and that's the news that's being reported on. Not is this a credible theory, but oh yeah, that this like general said this thing um, that may or may not be true, which makes it really hard. Yeah, really hard to identify. You know what's what's true, what's mm -hmm. false, and these days I feel like people could even argue that what is and isn't a reputable source is also subjective. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and and that's been. That's been going on for ages, but heightened, you know, with um, fake news and just that term, right? That that something can just be fake news and that all of mainstream media can be lying to us, which could be true. But I don't know. I just don't I just don't find it very plausible. You know, leaks happen and it's very hard to keep things contained. Yeah. It, but this does point to an interesting aspect of this whole conversation to me is that so much of the of these social media companies and the technological forces that are sort of shaping our digital experience are all in one little spot in the world, mm. Southern California, mm. with a with a sideline in um, China via TikTok, but, but most of it is Southern California. Yeah. I, I will say, yeah, in the sense that there's a few people making decisions that affect huge number of, disproportionately huge number of people. Like, yeah, the intentions and the outcomes can wildly be out of sync. You know, you can think, oh, yeah, we're going to, like, just solve climate change by giving, like, ride-sharing programs. And then instead you have people just driving around aimlessly, you know, burning petrol, uh, waiting to pick up someone so that they can eat for the day. And we don't have a whole lot of ethicists and philosophers constraining these discussions and these uh, policies. And we don't even have, you know, politicians. The fact that in the U.S., at least, like, all of our politicians are... Uh, most of our politicians are pretty ancient. You know, you just watch the Senate hearings and stuff where they interview Zuckerberg and you're just like, what are you talking about? You know, you got the senator being like, well, are you going to remove the Finsta? And they're like, that's, that's not how it works. You know, like you can't just, you can't, yeah, you can't remove someone creating a fake account. Like you can crack down on that maybe, but like, that's not what Finsta, Finsta is nothing. You know, it's not a, it's not a technological component. It's a, it's a thing people do. Um, and what was that word? Finsta, a fake Instagram. Ah, yeah. So, but just listening to, you know, these senators, like, try to create policy and respond is just, like, heartbreaking. You're like, I have no doubt that, you know, they have good intentions, they're good people, but 
you know, like some staffer just did not do the work of like translating, like what needs to be asked to like what needs to be done. How did you, this is a bit of a tangent, but how did you get onto this journey like of exploring theology, faith, technology? How did you get into it? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Uh, when I was doing my bachelor's, there is a professor who came to my dorm floor to give a talk and his talk was all about how media uh, as an environment shapes what we do, how we think, um, how we behave. Um, and I was just fascinated. I was just really taken. My dorm mates, my roommates, we are all really just like, oh, whoa, you know, we haven't thought about this before. And so that Lent, we gave up uh, all digital media for Lent. So 40 days, you know, wow. like no video games, no TV. This is, you know, this is when Netflix was still a, a disc in the mail. So it wasn't, you know, that hard. We were all 18 and, you know, really, really passionate um, about being good people. And there's this sense of, I think the sense of moral superiority, but also the sense of connection and how connected we felt to each other, how connected we felt to, you know, to God even through, through the, that, I, I don't want to say like sacrifice, but through that fasting journey. Yeah. And so, so. I took every class I could with this guy, Reed Shushart is his name. I just, yeah, fell in love with media studies and we ended up going on a study abroad trip to Europe, Germany and Switzerland uh, and looking at the media effects um, from the printing press, printing revolution and the reformation. And then similarly, the propaganda campaign and the technological influences in World War II. Yeah. So just, yeah, really, really interesting stuff. Yeah. I've just kind of been curious about it ever since. And you started at Wheaton College? That's I it, think. Wheaton College, yeah. yeah. And then Princeton? And then Princeton Theological Seminary, that's right. Yeah. And now here. And now here, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember in our course, Michael was my lecturer in a violence and peacemaking religious studies course. I remember you mentioning that you were there during the Boston Marathon um, bombing. Your dad was... I wondered if you would be comfortable with kind of sharing a bit more about your experience when that happened and kind of how how you see that, that one, shaped you and your views on kind of violence and peacemaking, but two, how you see technology maybe as a part of that story at all. Yeah. So in 2013... My dad ran the Boston Marathon. It was, oh, it was not his first time, maybe the second, third, maybe fourth time. And I went up to, I was in Jersey at the time um, doing my MDiv. And so I went up to Boston, um, which is maybe five hour drive, something like that. Yeah. And then so I was with my mom and we saw my dad turn the final corner. And then maybe four or five minutes later, we like heard these big explosions. We kind of looked and like saw um, some big puffs of smoke. Um, and this is Boston. People are, you know, all about the American Revolution. There's a like we had just done this whole like, you know, American Revolution tour. I'm like, oh, does this look like some kind of like weird colonial reenactment? You know, are they like shooting off cannons or something? Um, and then this guy like ran past being like, there's a bomb, you know, everybody run. And still I'm like, ah, uh, you know, like, is this just a panic? Like, you know, do we need to panic right now? But, you know, we're like, OK, well, we should probably like go back to the hotel and where we're supposed to meet up my dad and um and wait there and my mom was like no we need to go to the finish and i'm like no that's like the last place we want to be right now if there is a bomb yeah so we went we went back to the hotel and there on twitter i saw oh yeah reports of bombs two bombs going off on the boston marathon on the finish line 
And, you know, from the time and stuff, you know, you get like the chips and whatever. So my dad crossed, I think, two minutes before the bombs went off. Yeah. And so he wasn't there on the finish line. He had kind of gone through that section, through the eight tents and everything, um, and was already back kind of on his way back to the hotel at that point. But yeah, and it was interesting to me to think, okay, yeah, like I didn't trust the guy like yelling bombs, like running past me, but somehow I, I trusted Twitter. The other thing that happened was that all the cell networks got overloaded because everyone is calling and texting and the cell towers just aren't set up for that. And I don't know if they are now, but it was, you know, interesting that like when you need technology the most, when you need to get in touch with people, like it just doesn't work. Um, so I was, you know, on the hotel Wi-Fi, just like, you know, scrolling Twitter and trying to figure out what was going on. Yeah. And, you know, we couldn't get in touch with my dad and we just kind of waited for him to show up. You didn't know that he was safe then? No, but judging by like the size of the bombs and the site, like kind of the sounds of the explosions, like it didn't look like it was like, like a whole cluster bomb had gone off, you know? Um, and it was enough time kind of like since my dad had passed away, like, okay, like he's probably fine. Like it's going to be okay. Yeah. I think the other side of the story, though, is, you know, out of, I don't know if it's curiosity or just, you know, interest, I started researching the bombers and their motivation and the kind of their stories and what led to this kind of radicalization. And there's both the technological aspect, but there's also the globalization aspect of not finding a place to belong, you know, finding that community that sits around and talks about ideas and wants to be right and get things right. And, you know, I, I grew up Southern Baptist where we were obsessed with getting things right, you know? I, you know, we never threw bombs at anybody, but have done, you know, other horrible things at the Southern Baptist Convention has and Southern Baptist churches and Southern Baptist Christians. But, you know, the hurt that we can throw by clinging to this circle of saying, no, we're right, we've got it right, everyone else has got it wrong, um, our way is, you know, the right way and we'll do whatever we can to show that. And I guess, yeah, that power, right, of connection and belonging and how that can be a force for good or for, for evil. What did they want, the Boston Marathon bombers? Hard to say, really hard to say. Yeah, unclear, kind of unclear on what they actually wanted. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, I think basically, you know, just to get back at the U.S., I guess, you know. Um, the, another interesting thing about the story, though, technologically, is the whole hunt for the bombers, right? There was a young man who was, he was a person of color, he was brown. I don't remember his exact ethnicity, but he was missing at the time. Um, his family had filed like a missing persons report. Um, and so all these people on Reddit were like going through the footage and being like, they, you know, there's citizen surveillance and citizen uh, investigation and stuff and being like, okay, this guy had a backpack back, back in this CCTV footage, but he didn't in this one. And, you know, we think it looks like this other guy who's missing... And they just get it completely, completely wrong. And, you know, and then this person's family is getting, like, bombarded with, like, death threats. And, um, you know, they're, they're not even Muslim, you know. And they're going through this whole thing of, like, oh, my God, like, our child is missing. We don't know where he is. Um, and then they're put through this agony. Um, so that's one side of the story, right? Um, it gets out and then it gets published. It, someone tweets and then it just runs and has a life of its own. On the other side of it, though, the Reddit moderators did everything right and the system worked democratically in the way it should, where people who were doing these crazy theories and speculations got downvoted like really quickly. And the people who were making really hateful and discriminatory comments got downvoted or removed or moderated. And so, you know, it shows that even when the system is working 
the human drive for vengeance or for hate or to blame is still let loose on the world. You know, we were talking earlier about nonviolent movements and, and the power of a nonviolent movement to stay nonviolent is just incredible, right? You know, it's, it's pretty easy to be, you know, a, a person in a violent regime and to not commit violence, you know, just to abstain, but to keep everybody from giving into that human impulse to lash out to throw a punch, you know, to do something like that. It's really, really difficult. What you saw at the protest here in New Zealand, mm-hmm. right, at the parliament, I don't know if it was lack of leadership or lack of co-pop or whatever it was, right? There wasn't that person or persons or or uh, co-papa in that movement to keep things nonviolent. And it's a very human thing, right? It's a very mm-hmm. human thing to become violent. And you just see that exacerbated online and it gets amplified and radiates out in ways that are unspeakably tragic it's hard right like even if there had been like a really solid copapa of non-violence as soon as the police arrive and start to move people from the area it doesn't matter if like all of the protesters themselves were to surrender and put hands up I feel like there still would have been people step into that space who just have beef with the police and potentially get violent on protesters behalf as kind of using it as an opportunity yeah to like lash out there's also a tricky like around you know we believe that Jesus is the way the truth and the life and I'm like, I've been grappling since doing religious studies of like, you know, there's all of these wonderful religions which you see really peaceful versions and really not peaceful versions. And how do I know that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, you know, and that the only way to God is through him. And then kind of came to the conclusion of like, well, if I believe that he died and was resurrected, then like that just changes it all. If he died and was resurrected, then everything that he said is true, which means that he is the way, the truth, and the life, right? But there's still that that kind of grapple with, like, if I believe that my way is the right way mm. <laughs> or the thing that I believe is the right thing, then there's still that tendency to be like, well, I've got the answer and to want to impose that on others. I'm not keen to be that guy, but how do you live out a faith in believing that this is the right one without it being somewhat colonial. I think one of the greatest gifts we have in scripture is that there is no, um, the ends never justify the means, right? Um, And I think that colonial impulse, right, is to come and say, uh, these heathens are going to hell unless they become Christians. And they're not going to become Christians unless we colonize them and uh, civilize them and turn them back from their barbaric ways. That was the colonial idea, right? The ends justified the means. So by whatever means necessary, we're going to get these heathens into heaven. But we, we don't see warrant for that in scripture, right? We see, we see this lack of logic. We see this lack of calculus. We see Jesus saying, now I'm going to leave behind the 99 to go search for the one lost sheep. You know, um, I'm going to be like the woman who like, you know, looks for the lost coin. It's about, you know, following Christ, following a way of love, a reckless way of love, um, as Dorothy Day would say. And by doing that, you create an invitation and not a conquest, I guess, you know, over, over 
What do you notice about you've lived in quite a few different places? Sounds yeah, like yeah, yeah. What do you notice about New Zealand and and the contrast with your with your place of origin and stuff? One of the great things about New Zealand is the treaty and its commitment to biculturalism. There's such, such a long way to go. But in the US and Texas, especially, we don't even talk about indigenous people, you know, like we still stereotypes run rampant. You know, I couldn't tell you what, you know, tribes lived in my place of birth before before colonization happened. And that's a really that's a big gift. I think New Zealand, due to its size and leadership, is pretty flexible and pretty quick to act, um, which is something I really admire. You know, the way that Jacinda and the government responded after um, the Christchurch Mall shootings, um, banning firearms, you know, like, gosh, I wish the U.S. could do something like that. Man, you know, what a dream. I think, you know, it's funny, right? Uh, there's just a lot of stories we tell ourselves about the places we come from. And, you know, some of those stories and myths are have, have basis in reality. Some of them don't. And, and yeah, I, I think it's, there's a lot of really good stories um, about New Zealand and what it is to be, you know, a Kiwi. Aspirational stories. Yeah. The one thing, the one thing that I think is really cool is like, you know, the Rainbow Warrior and the whole uh, anti-nuclear movement and um, the way that New Zealand owns that as part of its history, you know, and, and now almost every New Zealander looks on that with pride. Um, but when it was happening, you know, like it was, it was very contested. Um, there was there were bitter debates about that. However, I do think that, you know, that whole movement has led some people down the maybe false equivalency between nuclear submarines and nuclear arms and nuclear power. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Have you heard of Shane Claiborne? I love him, adore him, and uh, saw this thing on his Instagram recently where he and some friends went into the, um, what's it called, the rifle? The NRA, yeah, yeah. Went into the NRA prayer meeting one morning and started reading out the names of people who had been affected by gun violence and families and, and saying, what were they saying? They said... Um, Lord have mercy. They'd read out a name and then they'd say, Lord have mercy. Just such a beautiful nonviolent act of being like, I mean, this is what your guns are doing, you know? Yeah. What happened next, do you know? They got removed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, um, his book, Irresistible Revolution, was like, you know, transformative for me when I was a teen. Yeah. What's so, it do for you, Michael? So I think, you know, he, his passion and his drive to... Um, live out his faith in an authentic way and in a radical way, in a way that was different, right? I think, you know, so much of my Christianity was kind of baptizing a certain uh, way of living, right? A culture and saying, oh yeah, this is like, you know, what God wants. Um, and that's, that's fine. It's okay to just like want to make money and, you know, and, and maybe it is. But Shane, you know, said, no, like the goal is not to make money. The goal is to live among people who are poor, who need help, who need God, who need Jesus. And when you do that and you're faithful to a call and faithful to a community, then beautiful things can happen and transformation can happen. And when you open yourself up to the Holy Spirit, you know that things can change and people can change. And that was really beautiful to me. I think what was really hard, and, and we're seeing this now, right? You, you have to say one thing before you can say the next. And I think that was the first word that needed to be said. The second word that needs to be said, right? Um, is that change is really difficult. Transformation is really difficult. You've got to show up 
again and again and again, and it gets tiring and it gets exhausting. And, and we have to tell those stories too of failure and failure and failure and failure and failure of trying to help people and trying to help people get onto the right track. And, and that's a story that's not as sexy to tell and not as inspiring to hear or to read. And that I think kind of put a, not a damper, but you know, like it's, it's just really hard work. And um, acknowledging that it's really hard and difficult work is important. My pastor has this, has been saying this really cool thing lately, this quote that's like, love is a, it's a rugged commitment to someone for them and with them unto their transformation so that they can then live out a rugged commitment to those around them to be for them and with them unto their transformation. I just think it's such a beautiful way of looking at love is like, it's actually like you're committed to that individual or to that group of people and it's rugged. Like it can be really hard, but that the purpose of your rugged commitment is to see transformation begin to happen in the lives of that person and, and the people around them. And I just think, yeah, that's a powerful picture of, Real love, I think, is you've got to do the hard with people. Yeah, it's so hard, right? You know, like we talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan. So easy, so easy to stop for someone uh, and be like, okay, you know, I'm going to help you out and go on your way. Never see you again. Like, good luck, have good life. You know, that's the easy part of Christianity. That's the easy part of loving your neighbor. Like, mm-hmm. showing up, you know, for that person who just like keeps getting drunk or keeps doing drugs or mm-hmm. keeps making self-sabotaging decisions you know that's the hard part that's that rugged that mm. rugged love you know mm. and, and that's just as important if not more important than that good samaritan act i think I, th- I think i would say that over time we have in this particular society thinking aloud have developed systems where we feel that it's not acceptable to have people eating on this side of the, on the side of the street and we, we've tried to make structures and health systems and welfare systems and stuff that make that less like, and I think that that impulse has quite a lot to do with Jesus' difference in the world. Yeah. And you could probably argue, like, maybe it's not like a physical bleeding we're talking about anymore. Maybe there's a there's a different kind of being beaten up and left on the side of the road that doesn't look like, doesn't yeah. look so physical and tangible. For me, that's that story, partly I, I take it as an invitation or a challenge to be the neighbour, like, you know, turn up. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. To see past difference. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Technology really helps us sometimes with that. And hinders. And right? hinders. Yeah. Because I do think there's a huge difference, right? Because we see people bleeding on the side of the road on Facebook, on Twitter, quite often. But there's little we can actually maybe materially do, you know? You know, maybe it may be someone supposed to give a little, you know, and, and if it was someone face to face, you'd be like, OK, look, like I'm going to help you out and maybe I'll help you with childcare. I'll help you, you know, babysit your kids or I'll help, you know, like lend you my car or that kind of thing. But with someone on the other side of the world, you know, it's just like, what do you what do you do? How do I love my neighbor? How do I love this person? And then enough of those things happen, right, where you're just like, oh, well, I can't do anything. And then I just move on with my day and don't do anything. How do you say sane in the face of that and all the other different uh, aspects of sort of craziness and need that the online world kind of presents you and us how do you stay sane yeah i think i think you concentrate on one thing you concentrate on a few things and and the immediate community around you is that that prayer attributed to um is it richard Niebuhr, Reinhold Niebuhr, one of the neighbors you know um that the, they say at the AA meetings you know 
you've got to have some kind of wisdom to discern the difference between what you can change and what you can't. I tend to lean towards the camp that says, you know, God is in control and um, God definitely acts through us and we should do all we can to make this world a better place and to bring God's kingdom here on earth. But also at the end of the day, salvation of the world is God's responsibility, not ours. And, and I think also having faith in your fellow humans thinking, okay, like by and large, our fellow humans are going to pursue beauty and justice, and love in the face of evil and adversity. And it's not all up to us. It's not, not just a individual thing. Yeah, finding community, I think, is really helpful for me. Being able to be anchored in, you know, a group of people who support each other and exemplify that love. Have you found community in New Zealand? Yeah, I have. I have. There's people at church, kind of good friends, too, just around. And, and then technology, too. You know, I've got a couple of group chats from friends from, from high school, even, and from uni. Yeah, it's different, but it's, yeah, yeah. part of the migrant experience, right? You were, you have been lecturing religious studies. What's the benefit of studying religious studies? Yeah. So I think religious studies, so I, I'm not trained in religious studies. I, I do, we called it like world Christianity or something at um, seminary and um, where we kind of looked at other religions and stuff. So I'm not trained in, in religious studies and it's been a huge opportunity for me to learn more and read more outside of what I normally read and what I normally focus on. And I think there's a lot of beauty in comparison, right? So, you know, you mentioned how do we know like ours is the right way and, and having some kind of humility and looking at other religions and the way other people do things and see the world and seeing the power and the beauty in that. I think that's really important. I think the historical aspect is really important as well. So to look at history of religion, see where religions come from, kind of dispel some of these myths about religion. You know, in, in an age where we're bombarded with image and image and information and information, Jacques says, you know, we, we go to these explanatory myths. Um, Neil Postman, who's a scholar at NYU, passed away um, a while ago now, but um, he says that in the face of information overload, our brain resorts to pattern recognition. And we know that those can be forces for good, right? It can help us as humans evolutionarily to survive. You know, we see something rustling in the bushes. We're like, ah, oh, that means something bad. You know, that's, that's a bad thing. We're going to run. Um, but now we see someone who's not quite like us and like, oh, we got to run, you know, we got to, got to move away. Um, and I think the power of religious studies and the historical context lets us look at those explanatory myths that we like prop up that says, oh, it's just all, you know, the far right's fault or the alt right's fault, or, oh, it's just all these anti-vaxxers fault, or, oh, it's all these like libs and whatever, you know, it's all their fault. Um, it helps us break down those myths and look at the particularities of religions and the particularities in the history and movements and how things happened, why things happened, and to reach beyond those myths and to reach beyond that pattern recognition and say, okay, there's something beautiful in this. There's something beautiful in the humanity and the sociality and the anthropology here. And finding that is, is really exciting and inspiring. And also it's one of the only places, you know, religious studies where you can really grapple with these questions that have to do with existence. So what does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to live a fulfilling life, to live a flourishing life? Uh, and to look at the different ways that people over the ages have looked at that over time in different spaces is, is really cool. I don't know, there probably maybe like other people asking, what does it mean to be human? But not in the same way, I think. Mm. 
I guess circling back a little bit, what what the online what the online world, social media and stuff is kind of doing to us in religion and in politics and in the way we see other people and we see the world and stuff it can feel kind of overwhelming. Where do you see hope in all of it? So I think I think the way I start as a media scholar, I, I start with kind of those enemies of hope, right? So the Episcopal Bishop of Texas, Andy Doyle, he was at a conference a few years ago that I went to, and, and he said, nostalgia is the enemy of hope. So, you know, what he meant by that is like looking back to the good old days and trying to get back to that is not the way we move forward. Um, it's not the way we imagine a new thing happening, the newness of the kingdom of God coming about. And I think, you know, that that's one of those explanatory myths, like, oh, if we could just get back to those good old days, if we could just get back to, you know, axing out all technology or, you know, the nuclear family or whatever it was, these, these myths, right? These things that never really were. If we could just get back to that, then we can, then we can bring God's kingdom here on earth. Um, so I think those explanatory myths are a big enemy of hope. I think a singular vision of society similarly is a is a killer of hope when you just think my way is the right way if we just do it my way if we just do it this way then everything will be solved you know and we just see in history time and again with whether it's a society or a government or a religion like just humans are going to be humans and, and there's no silver bullet singular solution so i think those are, are those are enemies of hope where i find hope in all of this is comfort in the sovereignty of God, right? So God is omnipotent in all of this. You know, if God's hand is on this world, and I believe it is, you know, then God will work all things for the good of those who love God. And God will bring God's kingdom here on earth. Oh, and, and it will be beautiful and it will be loving. You know, in theology, we talk about having this bifocal vision, right? So you have to look look to the end, look to the kingdom of God where it's fully realized, but you also have to look here and now and say, okay, well, what are the injustices and the oppressions and all of those things that are happening here and now? And how do we address those while also keeping one eye on, on the end, on the telos? And I think that's really important. Um, I think we can, we don't have to be singular. We can be multiple. We can be bifocal. We can look at more than thing, two things at once. Um, you know, we can, we can, say oh yeah like the the world's a really crappy place to be uh sometimes and often and it can be but also there's some real beauty in it and when that beauty we do see that beauty it's just a taste of the break the end breaking of the kingdom of god i think the other thing that's really encouraging to me and you know we touched on earlier is that there is no kind of logic or calculus in how we can make the world a better place. It defies logic. It defies human reason. You know, Paul talks about this. It's foolishness to the wise. Um, it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, and, and the call is to be faithful. The call is not to necessarily even to change the world. It's just to be faithful to God and to be a witness and to love and to do that rugged love and make the changes where we can. You know, and I was reading someone's Twitter feed earlier today and was talking about first and second Samuel and how um in the systems that were set up when Eli was priest and, you know, Eli wasn't a great guy. His sons weren't great. You know, they were defrauding people, eating the temple sacrifices, like sleeping with the uh, people serving at the temple, like, you know, not great. And then, um, and then, and then and the monarch comes and you're like, okay, well, is this going to be the new system that like saves everything? 
And no, you know, we know the answer, of course, is no. Like, Saul was pretty bad. David was like, uh, kind of okay, but also like pretty bad at a lot of things. And this idea that injustice will still happen no matter what system of power is in place is both, I think I find comfort in the biblical reality, um, the biblical, the scriptures acknowledging that this is the reality of humans. Um, this is the reality of power structures of society. And yet still God can act and yet still God will act in and through people and humans and God will and still act in humans today. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's capitalism or if it's communism or social democratic liberalism or whatever it is, there's still going to be injustices in this world, but God still will act and work in and through people. And do you, with that kind of bifocal vision talk about, do you see a role for technology somewhere in there for the online digitality world? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it just needs to kind of undergo constant, constant analysis. I think the, one of the biggest things that technology does is that it, it distracts us. You know, people have written a lot about this, about how our attention span is just completely eroded and destroyed because of technology. Um, really hard to say, kind of unethical to experiment on, you know. We do know that, you know, in the U.S. at least, like the average attention span of a high schooler, the, what, what they spend time on is the average is 65 seconds, right? So that's not a lot of time. The median is 19 seconds. The median time amount of time on any one task is 19 seconds. For office workers, it's about three minutes. I think there is hope here. I think that hope comes from putting our attention on God. I think technology can help that. But I think we need to figure out, I think, our relationship with God and fixing our attention on God first. And then and only then can technology come into play in the unfolding of um, the kingdom of God. You mentioned reading The Irresistible Revolution by Shane Claiborne, that being formative for you. Um, do you have any other books that, you, that you've read or that you are reading that you, that you think are worth kind of mentioning? Um, another one that really sticks with me is Dorothy Day's Reckless Way of Love. You know, she was kind of the founder of the Catholic social worker or Catholic workers movement in New York, and she's just, you know, super badass. You know, if you've got two coats, you're stealing it from the poor. You know, every time I open my closet, I'm like, oof. So that, you know, that kind of, that kind of stuff really, really, that kind of saintliness, I think is really inspiring and really convicting and trying to figure out, you know, a way to live with that call and live with those words and then still participate in society is, is really difficult. I just finished this book called False Divides by Lana Lopesi. So she takes the, the metaphor of the Moana, the, the ocean as a connecting vector that all these civilizations like Australia, New Zealand, the islands, Taiwan, even, you know, we're all connected by the ocean. And she says the internet can be like that. It can be a place to reconnect and reimagine society together in a more way. Um, really short, really easy read, really like accessible read too. Some other stuff on media studies specifically. There's a, a great little conference at Princeton Theological Seminary a few years ago, maybe 2020, 2019, um, where they talked about theologies of the digital. And there's a couple of, um, talks. I think, I think they're all recorded on YouTube or something if you search. And the transcripts are available as well. They're not really transcripts. They're like the papers that were, you know, associated with the talk. But Hannah Reichel has a really great talk about surveillance systems and AI and comparing that to God's knowledge and all knowledge and, you know, foreknowledge. And then Kate Ott, um, who's just a wonderful, wonderful theologian. She's got this 
this talk on how feminist theology has always been relational and interdependent and multiple um, and how that can lead us into a better place into thinking about the digital age. Um, and the other writer that I'm really just obsessed with right now is Natalie Wiggs Stevenson. She's a theologian up in Toronto um, and her recent book is called, called Transgressive Theology or no, Transgressive Devotion. Um, and she looks at performance artworks and then looks at and then looks at different uh, theological perspectives, um, and it's just wild, you know. It's just absolutely wild, you know. She talks about this performance art where this like, guy like shoots his friend, and like, what does that mean for us as Christians? And, and you know, we don't know if like that guy like intentionally shot him. Was he supposed to miss? Where is it? Where is he supposed to shoot him? Um, all this stuff, but you know, recording. It's like available. It's this. It's, it's uh, yeah. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. She has this great talk. This quote where she says, you know, theologians are just obsessed with orthodoxy, but I just want to like pick up these ideas and these things and just play with them a little bit longer, you know, hold on to them a little bit longer before putting them down. So really, yeah, really cutting edge stuff, you know, really opens up the way we think about God. Like she, she starts off by thinking, well, what if God had Alzheimer's? You know, what do it mean if we had a forgetful God? And yeah, just, just really cool stuff. So Natalie Wick Stevenson, I really love her writing. Yeah. Accessible too, really easy to read. Are y'all reading anything good? Um, I'm a little bit obsessed with this um, science fiction author, Gene Wolfe. And I just picked up a couple of his books from Brooklyn Library yesterday. He, you mentioned Chesterton earlier, mm. also a little bit obsessed with and cannot let go of that obsession. Um, I'm, I'm listening to his autobiography, not autobiography, his biography by Maisie Ward, I think her name is. And, and Gene Wolfe is also was, he died a couple of years ago, but he was Chesterton obsessed as well. And, and it's very interesting to see, just at this stage of life, see, starting to see, I guess, that Authors turning it up in other, in, in other people's works and the kind of echoes of people that kind of travel through books and, and the way the books sort of talk to each other is a, is a weird and interesting thing to me. Yeah. Are you reading anything, Rachel? Um, Rain and I are reading Religious Feminist Activist and it's this um, anthropologist. She looks at these kind of different, yeah, focus groups who all, some pagan, some Catholic, some more evangelical Christian and the way that they kind of interact with like activism um, and the way that, that their feminism informs that. I also watched this Netflix series, which I must recommend, called God's Favourite Idiot. Have you seen it? No. Oh, it's no. so funny. And I thought it was real interesting as a religious studies student because this guy starts glowing and finds out that he's meant to be this like messenger of the message of God and he's like meant to get out the message but he doesn't know what the message is. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, highly recommend. Cool. Take it out. Yeah. Um, I see that you're wearing a hoodie which says Free West Papua and it's got a very, I don't know if they're, they look passionate, I would say. They're yelling and there's, I'm guessing, West Papua flag. Yeah, yeah, riddled with some bullets and some chains that are being broken. I didn't even know about West Papua. And then I, I landed in Melbourne on February 2019 to meet my partner, now wife, um, then partner. And I get off the plane and I've got like my big bag. And she's like, all right, we're going to go to the Indonesian embassy to this free West Papua protest. And so we go, we meet all these um, West Papuan refugees and... Uh, we just kind of fell in with them, um, and I worked with um, the University of Melbourne on this project on spiritual healing in West Papua, 
Um, and my wife was working on this petition uh, to take to the Australian Senate, which got tabled to, you know, to bring a motion to the UN to grant West Papua autonomy um, and sovereignty over their state. So basically what happened is, you know, Papua New Guinea is the eastern half of that big island, right? So the west half is West Papua, currently occupied and colonized by Indonesia. So the Dutch left uh, in the 50s, 60s, and then days later, Indonesia came in and basically invaded and has been occupying West Papua ever since. And there's a lot of resources there. There's a lot of land, a lot of forest, a lot of natural resources, some gold. And so they've been very reluctant to give up the territory. And yeah, and, and so working with the West Papuan refugees, uh, a lot of them came over on a boat from West Papua and got lost at sea and then eventually did end up making it to Australia. Um, and just hearing their stories and, you know, because of the, the Dutch missionaries, a lot of them are very strongly Christian and they're very passionate about their faith. And so we were working to try to provide and find theological resources to support this movement for liberation, um, you know, that supports peace and love and nonviolence and also the realities of a violent struggle uh, and violent occupation yeah so so definitely uh medica papua uh free west papua it's a issue that you know kind of flies under the radar and it's just in our backyard you know and and just recently um indonesia just cut all the scholarship funding for all west papuan students um and so anyone who is abroad just all their scholarship money just got cut and so you know right now the activists here uh, in New Zealand Aotearoa are working on fundraising to try to provide for these students who are you know studying and in, in Aotearoa and have no funding anymore so yeah if you, if you can give a little um there's some campaigns circling around if you if you google that then you should be able to find thank you thank you so much for your time today Michael mm. it's been really wonderful really appreciate it Thanks for having me and letting me ramble a little bit and work through some of these ideas. It's been, it's been fun. Totally, yeah. So interesting. Mm-hmm.